look back on in our lives and say, do you remember where you were when you heard this was happening? And perhaps that will be true, but one of the things that we have seen since then has been a, a multitude of reactions to this, both inside and outside of, of what we would call Christendom, right? You have politicians from every stream out there giving statements. You have Christian leaders making proclamations about what has taken place and condemnation of, of actions. But I think what we have failed to see are reactions that have first been brought in line with the principles that we see set forth in this passage. And it is not my goal to, to, to stand up or stand in judgment of what other believers may or may not have proclaimed publicly, but I have a responsibility before God to you to remind you of what is true and what is of greatest importance. Because let's be honest. <laughs> Our minds have probably gone to pretty crazy places this week, have they not? And maybe some of those places aren't so crazy, but they're actually true. We don't just all know yet. But the reality is, we have enough information and enough marching orders from our Lord to be faithful in every situation that we face. And that must be where we begin even as there's much we do not know about what's happened, both in D.C., but with elections, and, and, and we can go down the line as it relates to where we are as a nation at this time. But no matter what may or may not happen, or what God allows to happen, in the context of this nation, brothers and sisters, we cannot lose sight of what matters most, and that is faithfulness to our Lord and Savior. We must be committed to glorifying God in all that we do. And this does not mean that we do not engage our culture. We certainly can and should seek to do that both wisely and faithfully and boldly with the truth. But brothers and sisters, we must never forget where our hope and our confidence is found. Now, as we dive in this morning, we have visitors with us, and I welcome you, and, and, and thank God that you are here. Uh, but, but in going forward, I think you need a little context, right? You, you've joined us in the middle of something that's going on in, in the life of Jesus. So it would be good for me to take a moment and just back up and, and give a little context of where we are. John chapter 4, beginning at verse 1 encapsulates Jesus' encounter with a woman of Samaria. A Samaritan woman, you probably all have heard this story uh, at some time or another if you've been in the church. But perhaps if you haven't, it would be good for you to, 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 to know a little background. Now in the Old Testament, when David was king, there was one kingdom, the kingdom of Israel. David's son, Solomon, succeeded him to the throne, and his unfaithfulness led to God's judgment on the nation. After the death of Solomon, God said, you know what, I'm 
splitting this kingdom in half. And so you had the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And, and really, the rest of the Old Testament is about how God dealt with these two kingdoms while also keeping his promise that a Messiah would come to redeem the people of God. A Messiah not just for Jews, but a Messiah for the whole world. And here in the Gospel of John, obviously we are, 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 are learning about this Messiah, Jesus, the Son of God, sent to, 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 to be the sacrifice that, that, that would reconcile those who believe to God forever. But at this point in, in Israel's history, the, the kingdom, that, or that land, pretty much that used to be called the kingdom of Israel, the northern kingdom, was now referred to as Samaria. And the Jews and the Samaritans, the Jews in the south were in Judah, and the Samaritans did not get along. The, the Jews looked at the Samaritan as half-breeds because of the, the course of their existence when the kingdom split the northern Jews began to intermarry with those who were outside of the Jewish heritage, which God had forbade. And so as a result, over the years, this animosity grew between the, the Jews and the Samaritans. The Jews looked down on the Samaritans. They didn't think that the, the Samaritans were truly the people of God anymore because they were no longer pure in the eyes of God. They, they did not hold to all of the, uh, the, the, the Old Testament as the Jews did. And so they even viewed their religion as being false. Samaritans, of course, not being happy with being disliked by the Jews and looked down upon, held the Jews in contempt as well. And so here we have this account where Jesus and his disciples are passing through Samaria. They stopped at a, at a location that was, was vital to the Samaritans known as Jacob's Well. Jacob is in the patriarch, Jacob. And here we find Jesus in chapter 4 resting while his disciples go into the town of Sychar to buy food. And, and we've seen over the past two weeks... Jesus' interaction with this Samaritan woman. He begins by asking her for a drink. Now we've learned so far that, that this animosity between the, the Jews and the Samaritans was so strong that no self-respecting Jewish male would speak to a Samaritan, much less a Samaritan woman. Jesus, in essence, was making himself ceremonially unclean in the eyes of many Jews to take the time to speak to a Samaritan woman. But not only does Jesus speak to her, but he reveals himself ultimately to her as the Messiah, the one who was sent from God. So, so, so the encounter that you missed if you're visiting with us is, is significant. And it's important that we have this in mind as Jesus relates to his Disciples, because the disciples have come back to a scene that they did not expect. They, they, Rabbi, how, how could you? That might be done in a little bit. 
<laughs> now, if you were with us last week, I, I stopped at, at verse 26. And, and I just want you to know that I'm not skipping verses 27 through 30 uh, in, in terms of the exposition, but I'm going to come back to those verses next week as we consider how all of the Samaritans ultimately responded to Jesus being among them. But, but as we tackle these verses this morning, I, I want to, to do so really under two main headings as I remind you, just as Jesus enlightens his disciples, that as Christ followers, we are called to something greater. Something greater than, than, than anything this life has to offer. Anything this life can promise us. And, and there's some pretty great and amazing joys that we experience in this life. God blesses his people in this life. Does he not? Yes. Look around you. You are a blessing to one another. You are a, a gift from God to one another. You are a means of, of God's kindness to his people. That he's made us his church. And in that aspect of God's blessing is going to be eternal. But, but in terms of the, of the temporary joys that we encounter, the, the temporary goals that we can attain to, nothing is as great as what we are called to as followers of Christ. And so we're going to consider what it means to be faithful as the people of God. First of all, we're going to see that faithfulness means that we embrace the highest priority as Christians. And secondly, we're going to see that faithfulness means that we must labor for God's kingdom rather than our own. And it is my prayer that God would strengthen his people as his word is proclaimed. So let's look first of all at embracing the highest priority. Are we tested this morning? There we go. Embracing the highest priority, verses 31 through 34. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Now, we saw earlier when I read verse 27 that the disciples are returning from the village where they went to buy food. And, and again, I reminded you earlier where they were. Samaria. Their, their trip to the village to buy food was, was probably not one in which they felt very welcome. Jews would be different in the eyes of the Samaritan, even based on the Samaritan's based on how they dressed. They wore different types of clothes. So when the, when, when the disciples came to town, not only would they not want to be rubbing up against the Samaritans, but the Samaritans really didn't want anything to do with them. Have you ever been in one of those situations where, maybe, unfortunately, sometimes it happens in families, where there's conflict or, or there's a, a grudge that exists and you find yourself in, in, in the presence of those people with whom that conflict is, is when it's awkward, right? 
You're tempted to think ugly thoughts. You don't really want to engage. You want to keep those things to a, a minimum. So, so, so the Samaritans probably only wanted their money, but definitely not their, their presence. And, and the disciples themselves also had sinful prejudice, prejudices. And, and at the very least, you, you've got a group of disciples who are ready to get back home, right? They, they want to get back to, to, to Judah. They, they, they don't want to be here anymore. So, so they've been here in, in the town dealing with Samaritans and, and, and seeing Jesus talking to a Samaritan woman when, when they returned it was a shock to their system. Verse 7, or 27 says that they marveled that Jesus was talking with a woman. That Greek word translated marveled means to be amazed or, or astonished, to, to be in wonder. In this case, wondering what he's doing, Right? The disciples walk up and they are fresh from the village where they were surrounded by people whom they didn't like and didn't like them. And in return, here they find Jesus breaking what was viewed as socially acceptable behavior by talking with this Samaritan woman. And we found out last week she wasn't just any Samaritan woman. She was an adulterous Samaritan woman. And Jesus fully knew that. What's he doing? Simon, say something to him. Doesn't he know he's not supposed to talk to her? They were amazed. And the woman leaves. And then the disciples urge Jesus to eat. That's why they stopped in Samaria to begin with. To, to eat and to rest. At least that's what the disciples were thinking. Now, the narrative reads like the disciples are pretending they, they didn't see Jesus talk with the woman. It says clearly, nobody asked him any questions. Nobody asked her any questions. Let's just pretend like it didn't happen and move on. They, they moved straight into the business at hand. Jesus needed to eat. They were all tired and they were all hungry. But Jesus had an important lesson to teach them. Now, in this exchange between Jesus and his disciples, we run into the same problem that we have seen with every encounter almost in both chapters 3 and chapters 4 as Jesus first deals with Nicodemus, who dealt with things strictly on a literal and natural level as Jesus talked about being born again. We saw it again with the Samaritan woman as it related to living water. This is actually H2O I can drink. And now the disciples, as Jesus begins talking about food, their first thought, and you can't really blame them, is that Jesus is speaking on natural terms. Rabbi, eat. Jesus responds, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the natural question would be, where did you get this food, Jesus? We've been with you. We, we came through Samaria and we stopped to eat. Why didn't you whip this out when we first got here? We'll be gone by now. Jesus? Did a Samaritan get him food? And it's an understandable mistake, but John includes it because it reveals that how time and again throughout this gospel, how blind people are to the deeper truth that Jesus is communicating to them. 
And in their confusion, Jesus brings clarity in verse 34. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And the lesson is clear. Some priorities, brothers and sisters, are even more important than our basic needs for life. Let that sink in. That, that is a kicker, is it not? In, in, in a society that values comfort as much as we do, we do. How many of you would have stayed home if the heat was broken here? Right? We love us some comfort. But Jesus reminds us that there are greater priorities in our lives, even than the most basic needs that we turn to each and every day. I didn't sleep a lot this past week. Some of it was due to the things that have happened in this nation, some due to the fact that I don't typically sleep well, and this passage was really a shot in the faith as it relates to that reminder that there are some things that are more important than food. There are some things that are more important than drink. There are some things that are more important than, yes, even sleep. Hallelujah. And that is to do the will of God. And so Jesus is dropping significant truths, not just upon his disciples, but upon us this day. Jesus knew what it was to hunger and thirst, to be weary, to be grieved, to be physically spent. But he also knew that the greatest thing that he could do in any situation was to submit himself to God's plan. Because if he didn't, we would have no sacrifice that could save us. From our sins, there would be no glory for God in the obedience of the Son. Jesus prioritized obeying and glorifying God in everything he did. And in so doing, he made himself the only acceptable sacrifice that could redeem us. And he also provides for us the model of how we must prioritize our lives as well. Now, I'm going to be honest, this is going to sting for a lot of us. Because we are so comfortable that we need to weigh our faith, we need to weigh our priorities, and to see where God's will, God's glory, God's gospel fits in our list of priorities. Do, do we think about honoring God as a priority that's even greater and more satisfying than our next meal? Sometimes not, right? For, for the average Christian, our, our comfort is our highest priority, and this is a sin that we must repent of. Jesus prioritized the will of the Father, and in so doing, he provides the way of salvation so that we could prioritize his glory. Which includes our obedience. And if this sounds extreme to you this morning, friend, may I humbly suggest that you're not reading your Bible. In, in rejecting cultural norms and engaging the, the Samaritan woman, Jesus models what it means to do the Father's will. 
Supper could wait. Sleep could wait. There was a sinner who needed to meet her Savior. This is one of the most compelling passages that we've encountered so far in my mind. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus record, or excuse me, John records this one sentence to remind us that everything that Jesus does, he does in submission to the Father, including the cross. If Jesus, who is the God, who is God the Son, had this attitude, how can we not? Brothers and sisters, 1 Corinthians 6, 18 through 20, Paul writes, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were, underline this, bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Glorify God in how you use your body. Glorify God in how you use your mind, your mouth, your affections. Submitting to the will of God and pursuing His glory are what will truly satisfy the Christian because as we do this, we come to know God more fully. Knowing Him leads to our growing to, to want to do these things more. Those things feed off each other as we read and obey by faith. Our faith grows. Our desire for Him grows. Our, our understanding that even as the, the pain is deep at times in this life, there is a joy that is to come that surpasses this pain. And we're going to look and we're going to stand before God or kneel before God one day and realize that, that there's nothing that we gained or lost that, that comes close to what we are beholding in that moment. Do you believe that, brothers and sisters? This must become our food and our drink. Jesus would be satisfied with nothing less, and we must reprioritize our lives in following that example. Will we follow that example, brothers and sisters? Jesus then calls the disciples to labor for God's kingdom. Verses 35 through 38. Do you not say that, excuse me, do you not say there are yet four months then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower may the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true: one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. 
In verses 35 through 38, Jesus shows the disciples that his priority will become their mission. He, he uses an illustration uh, of farming to, to drive home his point. Now remember, that, that would be something that would be very common to them. Everywhere they went almost, there were fields. Verse 35a, do you not say there are yet four months then, and then comes the harvest? Now, there, there's some debate about this verse, not on its meaning, that's pretty obvious. But, but, but what it reveals about the setting. And I share this just because I think it's, it's interesting, at least point two of it. Now, some scholars believe that Jesus is simply quoting an ancient Jewish or Samaritan saying, which... You know, related to the, the yearly harvest. The harvest would be in the spring. But another view is that Jesus was speaking about the current time of year when this event actually took place. Remember the setting was, was Jacob's well and Mount Gerizim looms in the background and they are surrounded by fields. And in this case, there would be fields that would have been green with crops that were not yet ready to be harvested. If this view is correct, then Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman would have taken place in, in December or early January. And personally, I, I hold to this second view, not because it gives us months, but because as we look at how Jesus teaches throughout the Gospels, he often uses the surroundings to drive home his point. And a powerful point it is. Either way, the, the meaning stays the same. But in 35b, Jesus says, look, I tell you, lift up your eyes. See that the fields are light for harvest. Now, is he speaking metaphorically? No. We, we learn that, that, that the villagers in the next verse, uh, excuse me, in, in verse uh, 39, that they were coming out from the town to see him. You, you see, or you say, that, that in four months, all this is going to be harvested. I want you to look. Look what's coming out of the town. There's your harvest. Now, some have said they were all wearing white. I don't know. But that culturally, that was, they tend to dress in, in lighter clothes. That might be the case. But either way, the people were coming out to him. And Jesus is communicating to the disciples what was going on? The, the woman had gone to the village to, to tell people about him, verses 28 through 30. And, and in verse 30, we see that they went out of the village, out of the town, and were coming to him. The fields white for harvest are the townspeople making their way to Jesus. These Samaritans who seemed little more than an annoyance to the disciples earlier are the very reason that Jesus came to Samaria. It wasn't about water. It wasn't about food. It was so that Jesus could meet this woman at the well and then be introduced to this village as, as the Messiah, the one sent from God to redeem that, that's why I've separated these two sections. First of all, it'll be a, a, a two-hour sermon. Nobody wants that. But, but also because I, I want you to first consider how significant this is to the disciples, or for the disciples, and for us. But then next thing, I want us to marvel at the fact that Jesus revealed himself.
worthy. He utters the words to the Samaritan woman, I am he, in reference to her statement to the Messiah, about the Messiah. This is huge. Can you tell? The disciples thought this was a pit stop in their journey home. But for Jesus, it was the reason they were here. This was, verse 34, the food that Jesus had to eat to do the will of the Father. And as the people continue to make their way to Jesus, he concludes with this short but vital lesson for the disciples in verses 36 through 38. He says, already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I say you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. So continuing this illustration from agriculture, the, the fields full of crops, they don't get there by accident. Did you know that? That this spring and summer when you drive through Lancaster County and you're surrounded by fields of corn and, and other incredible crops that we grow here, that didn't just happen. Somebody had to plant, right? They had to plant the seeds that, that, that would grow into the, to, to, to the fields full of harvest that we see every year here in this county. Unfortunately, fertilized with very foul smelling things. But someone has to sow the seeds. Someone labored to plant those seeds just as someone labors to reap the harvest that they grow into. Jesus in verse 36, he says, already the one who reaps is, is receiving his wages and gathering fruit for eternal life. In other words, the time is now, disciples. The people are coming to you. The people coming to you are here for the truth. The people coming to you are going to become followers of me. Lead them to me. And this, again, is one of the most beautiful scenes in the Gospel of John. As Jesus reveals himself as Messiah first, not to, to the people who thought they deserved it, but to those whose ignorance and sin had blinded them to the truth. That's us. That's us. When, when our eyes and hearts were open to the gospel, when, when, when that seed that had been planted by some faithful believer who shared the gospel with us, or maybe several believers uh, over time who shared the truth with us, we were ignorant. We were sinful. We were deserving of God's wrath. But then our eyes were opened to the truth. Faith was awakened within us. And we believed. We are Samaritans, brothers and sisters. And God in his mercy revealed the truth to us. People who the disciples dismissed would become the focus of some of their most important ministries at this point. And in verses 37 and 38, we see that the people of God 
can play a role as either sower or reaper when it comes to God's call to, to proclaim the gospel and to make disciples of all nations. The sower proclaims the gospel while the harvester is there when their eyes and their hearts are open to the truth. As I mentioned before, there can often be multiple people in this process. But God is the one bringing about regeneration and faith, ultimately breaking down the idols of our hearts that kept us from worshiping the one true God. Verse 38 is a warning against taking pride in whatever role we play in this, in this process that we're called to as followers of Christ. He tells the disciples, yeah, you're, you're my boys, but understand something. You are entering into something that has already begun. You're playing a role, but I'm the goal. Now, as many of you know, and some of you may be figuring out by how I pronounce something word, certain words, I, I grew up in the South. And there was a little town near where I grew up, and even where Angela and I lived for a time, called Eden. And it was nothing like the Garden of Eden, except for maybe after chapter 3 of Genesis. <laughs> but there was a church there for the longest time that when you would drive by, they would advertise the number of souls that they had saved that year, up to that point. Remember that church? And if that number was ever accurate, that city would be a lot less immoral than it is today. Bad example of what happens when we lose sight of what this is all about. Anybody can raise a hand or walk around. Well, as God has been at work with you in the heart, this is an act of futility. And we are called to believe and respond to faith. And I make that call to any unbelievers among us today. Understand that you have one hope in this life. And that is the price that Jesus paid in order to have you forgiven of your sins, in order to have you acceptable to God, to be able to reconcile to God in faith. You were created. To, to reflect how great God is. And in your sin, you have not done that. You, you need someone who is not you to make things right with God, and Jesus has done that. And the call is to believe, to respond in faith to what he has done for you. Now, as we consider this event as it relates to, to the history of, of the church, so that here in chapter 4 of, of the Gospel of John, this marks an important moment in the history of the church. For the Samaritans, who only believed in the books of Moses, the first five books of the Bible, the, what we would call the Pentateuch. So the work of Moses in the Pentateuch is, is, has been made clearer because of Jesus teaching the Samaritan woman. And this leads to many Samaritans in her town becoming followers of Christ. They came out and heard him teach. And so we see this, 
moment in the history of the church where the focus goes not just from what was written about the one who was to come to the one who was present with them. And so we cannot miss the significance as we continue to work through John's gospel. Sowing and reaping and making disciples are, are still our calling as the people of God. Why? Because Jesus has not returned yet, brothers and sisters. He's still building his church. And, and because this is still the case, we must prioritize this in our own lives as well. Remember, we learned last week that as the Samaritan woman brought up worship, all that we do should be an expression of our worship of God. As we worship him faithfully and all that we we are laboring faithfully for his kingdom rather than our own. Now as Jesus' disciples returned to Jesus for the food that they had just purchased in town, they probably would have walked right past the Samaritan woman. So as he was finishing with her, as they were coming up, and they were like, what's going on? They likely looked down on her and their spiritual pride, at least their national pride, and their attitude in town was probably no better. But Jesus came to give his life for these people as well. Now I've done my best over the past three weeks to, to help us see the level of animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans, but because this helps us see the beauty of this passage, does it not? But I have to say, the, the fallout from the events in Washington this past week and the things that are being said by politicians, Christians, and, and Christian leaders, they make me realize that, that, that for us to, to, to fully get a sense of the animosity that existed between the, the Jews and, and the Samaritans, maybe we should take a moment to consider the ugliness that exists between Democrat and Republican. Especially as you see politicians and talking heads out before us after an event like this. And sadly, not just Democrat and Republican politicians, but those who often are, are, are very militant in their following of their political parties. There's a level of animosity and anger that exists where we immediately discount anything that the other side might say or do. And we, like the disciples, need a wake-up call. We must prioritize the gospel. We must prioritize responses which bring glory and honor as we engage with, to God, as we engage with one another and those outside the church. Are we looking for opportunities to sow the gospel into the lives of unbelievers or, or are just seeking to win an argument? Now don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that this is the time to disengage, but to engage. But we must engage with our priorities in order. I think one of the great condemnations of the church at this time in, in our country's history is our willingness to accept 
what God calls an abomination in Proverbs chapter 20. And that is the abomination of unequal weights and measures, scales, if you will. Well, what do you think? We are far too comfortable with the public sins and failings of those who line up with our own ideologies more than we are with those of our opponents, those who hold to That's an unequal weight. It's an abomination. That's the word that the Bible used to describe God's hatred in a way that, that, that no other word can Adultery in one is just as offensive in God's sight as an adultery in another. Pride in one is, is just as much an abomination in God's sight as pride in the other. And we need to recognize why we cannot primarily put our hope in fallen man. So as we weigh and judge all that is going on in this nation and in our lives, we need to do so with a standard that, that is, is not subjective as our emotions tend to be. But we need to recognize that as we weigh what we see and we hear and the things that happen and as we engage, we need to be engaging with the truth, with the goal of introducing others to Christ. Because we're not going to legislate anyone into the kingdom of heaven. Only Christ, only the gospel can save. Now again, I'm not calling for silence, but I'm calling for Christian witness from the church. Faithfulness. Recognizing that no matter who is our president, it's not nearly as bad as what we deserve as a nation. church must rise up, brothers and sisters. Not to win moral arguments, but by preaching the gospel, revealing that the only purity of morality is faith in Christ. I'm going to close with a quote from Matthew Henry that shook me. The glory of Christ ought to be the end of our life. The grace of Christ, the principle of our life, and the word of Christ, the rule of it. The Christian life is derived from Christ and directed to him. He is the principle, rule, and end of it. His agenda, our agenda, brothers and sisters? Are we willing to give our lives for that to be the case? I would lovingly submit to you, dear ones, that this must be so. Lord, again, I thank you so much for these dear brothers and sisters for the opportunity.